This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Yeah, I wouldn't even mind doing because I was weird on the intro because I didn't know what you were going to say. So no, I was, it was just great, like, Lisa, just go with it. What? That I'm here? Hi, <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> that was so Lisa. I'm here, I guess. Mm. I sound right. depressed. <laughs> Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego, and I'm joined this week not by any of the Andes, not Andrea Lopez Villafana, not Andy Keats, but instead Associate Editor Jesse Marks. What's up, Jesse? Greetings and salutations, Scott. <laughs> Good. <laughs> That's better than anything Andy's ever said. And Senior Investigative Reporter Lisa Halverstadt. What's up, Lisa? Oh, I'm here. Yes. You are. Thank you for joining me. We'll have a great conversation. Coming up on the show this week, police are responding to calls more slowly, in some cases drastically slower, and residents are getting worried. Lisa published a story this week with some of those worries and new data on just how long it's taking law enforcement to respond to violent incidents and assaults. We'll run through the explanations and excuses City Hall offered. We wouldn't have Lisa on without talking about the number one issue in San Diego. She'll talk about her scoop that plans are afoot to set aside a safe space, perhaps in Balboa Park, for homeless residents, but then also increase enforcement of no camping allowed elsewhere in the city. It all comes amid news that hepatitis A, yes, the virus, is back. That's the one that catalyzed city officials to act on homelessness five years ago. It's apparently spreading again. That's coming up. Stay with us. But first, we ran a fundraising push this week to celebrate 18 years, 18 years. Voice of San Diego has been around. It was our 18th anniversary. February 9th, it went live in 2005. You all showed up in a big way, and we appreciate your support. Every gift you give helps sustain this podcast and all the investigative journalism we do to make San Diego better. 
Obviously, some of the folks who gave this week gave us a little shout out. Zach Field said, in particular, Lisa Halberstadt's coverage of the homeless crisis is what made him want to give. John Stevenson said, I like the new mission statement and your reporting. We talked about that last week. If you didn't hear the podcast, uh, you can hear that discussion. Emily Zaring said, uh, excellent investigative journalism, especially matching COVID deaths with party registration. Thank you, Emily. If you missed your chance to give, you didn't actually. In fact, we're tracking a little bit under what we need to see for our membership targets for the year. So please consider donating Push a couple of buttons and make it happen. That helps us a lot. Every donation matters. You can support your favorite public affairs podcast, probably the best public affairs podcast recorded in San Diego, in this part of San Diego in particular, at vosd.org slash podpeople. That's vosd.org slash podpeople. So these notes make you feel good, Lisa? Yes. Thank you, Zach. Yeah. Glad to see the COVID project got a shout out too. Took us, took us only nine months to do. So <laughs> that's good. Great work, though. Yeah, thank thank you so much. All right, the link for donating will be in the show notes again. You can do it at vosd.org slash podpeople. So County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher, embearded as he was, this just rugged look, announced uh, that he was going to actually try to leave office early so that he could serve in the state Senate. He wants to run for the Senate seat that Tony Atkins is leaving. And he's quite excited about doing that, getting back up to Sacramento. But that opens up a big discussion about who takes his seat. Now, the county could call a special election or just replace him with a board of supervisors vote. So we'll see what happens. He still has to win that seat, of course, and somebody will want to run. But uh, a lot of people are talking about, well, who would want to take that seat? City Councilman Stephen Whitburn comes to mind. Uh, City Councilman Raul Campillo. City Councilwoman uh, Monica Montgomery Stepp. They're all in the district. It's kind of the district is mostly the city of San Diego, except for like Ocean Beach and some of the coastal areas. But uh, it should be an interesting scramble. And of course, if one of them leaves, it would create this uh, dominoes that, that we've seen. We haven't seen a domino like that since... Bob Vilner left. You remember that one. Oh, boy. Well, one thing I think was interesting is this week, um, the first lineup of endorsements that Nathan Fletcher rolled out was all nine city council members. So, you know, maybe some folks are hoping. I don't know if they all knew that, you know, they were being talked to about endorsements and rolling that out. I also just think it's really important to to point out your clear beard bias here. You've got a huge <laughs> bias for beards. Scott has a beard, for those of you who haven't seen him. And Nathan Fletcher did shave off his beard apparently for uh, Valentine's Day. His Uh, wife, Lorena Gonzalez, posted a very victorious picture of the two of them. She was very happy about this. I don't have a bias toward beards. I was just, I just (laughs) was recognizing somebody's good beard. Jesse's got a good beard. (laughs) I'm beard biased. (laughs) And bearded just sounded like a good way to to describe what was going on. He clearly wanted to like be rugged for a couple of weeks. Lorena put the kibosh on that though, huh? She did, yes. I, I just think whoever wants that seat is going to have to have some serious stamina and you got to be a glutton for punishment. Have you watched any of those meetings lately? Like when Oof. when Nathan first first said he was he was going to leave and run for Senate, I was like, why? There's so many interesting things going on at the county these days. Then I watched one of those meetings and it's just a whole day of anti-vaxxers taunting you, yelling at you about how you're jabbing people and getting them sick. Like 
I, just good luck to whoever wants that seat long term. Well, especially him though, right? Like they they in particular singled out him, yeah, as the one. And if you look back, I think this is still one of the most interesting um, discussions about organizational power structures and stuff. So when Nathan Fletcher was elected, he was a minority, right? The the as far as party registration on the county board of supervisors, there were only two at that time, right? Um, did Nora? No, Nora. No, was he, was, no. he was the yeah. first. He yeah. was the first. Yeah, so there there was only one Democrat, him, on the Board of Supervisors. Now, when COVID started to show up, he and um, Greg Cox volunteered to be on the COVID committee. And Greg Cox lost his voice. Remember, he had trouble speaking. So Having when COVID issues. became a big thing, there was Nathan Fletcher, again, appointed by the, all of the, the Board of Supervisors, unanimously chose him and Cox to be on this committee. And then just by kind of like manipulating the system, but also just volunteering and, and playing that role, he got to be the face of the county's response to to, to COVID. So it, it was this like, you know, careful what you wish for a moment because he ends up, he gets to be the face of this county mobilization around this worldwide emergency and our local thing. And he, every day he's on TV. And so he becomes the person attributed with all of the county's actions. Like if it, it's Nathan Fletcher making this decision, he kind of, you know, Nathan, he kind of dug it. Like this is, you know. <laughs> yeah. Kinda, <laughs> but... It also then made him the face for all of what you're describing. Mm -hmm. And they just despise him and have singled him out in particular as like the beast. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because the emergency rules are about to end any day now. So we'll we'll see if they if they move on to other members of the Board of Supervisors. But I have noticed, interestingly, they've increasingly been hard on Jim Desmond, which really? is kind of an interesting move. Yeah, totally. So it's like they're shifting around the Board of Supervisors. Find depending the next on villain? Yeah, next villain, exactly. Well, one thing I think is interesting is if Nathan does, in fact, get elected to the Senate, which it looks like he's kind of cleared the field for himself, he'll actually be going back to Sacramento because he was in Sacramento as a state assemblyman before, but as a Republican. Yeah. So this would be his second tour of duty there. Yeah. Yeah. He loves it up there, clearly. Just to, just one quick thing on, on Jesse's point. They can't quit COVID. I think there's two, both sides of the extreme COVID response can't quite quit COVID. It, it, it became such a dominant part of our lives that it that people constructed their entire purpose around uh, either backlash to it or you know fear and 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 sort of protection from it right and so it's like it's like I don't know if how long that could last but it could last another like ten years it feels like yeah those those same anti vaxxers who were taunting him for a while they look at every item on the agenda and comment on it now it's like it's evolved into something bigger but it always comes back to the vaccine every single issue homelessness they go those folks are homeless because of the vaccine. And it's just like this never-ending infinite universe of using these things from the last two years in perpetuity. So again, good luck. So there is a, a nightmare scenario going around democratic circles right now about what happens. So the theory is that Fletcher will win and then um, at the same time, 
Richard Bailey, the mayor of Coronado, will run for Tara Lawson-Reamer's seat because her district oh. now goes all mm-hmm. the way down the coast. Mm-hmm. And if he's able to win, then there'd be three Republicans on the Board of Supervisors who could nominate or appoint a fourth Republican and leave just one Democrat back on the Board of Supervisors again after all this effort that the Democratic Party and activists put into that. So I actually called... Uh, Richard Bailey to ask if he was going to run, and he's like, "Yeah, no, I don't think so. I um, uh, I've heard that rumor as well, but it seems to be coming from people who are just looking at the map and seeing who might be a Republican elected official in that district. <laughs> and he's and, the only one I'm, left. <laughs> I'm one of the only ones left. Wow. So uh, uh, we'll have his full quote in the politics report. I but leave it to the Dems to 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 cook up some paranoia about what might happen, right? Well, there's been a lot to be paranoid about in the past, I guess. <laughs> we have been hearing a tremendous amount of consternation about police, police being called to incidents and not responding ever or within several hours. We are hearing a lot of that. A lot of that was anecdotal and it was hard to put together. You decided to pull the latest numbers, Lisa. What did you find out? What made you look into it? And and um, and how definitive was it? Well, like you said, there have been a lot of different anecdotes and opinions about what's happening with public safety and police in our city. And so uh, me and a couple others at Voice have just been trying to figure out, okay, how do we establish what's actually going on with this? And so one of the first things that I decided to look at was response times. And what I found is that police are taking a lot more time. Um, if you look before COVID in 2018 and, and you compare with 2022, taking a lot more time to respond to certain types of crimes. Um, these are not necessarily, you know, like shootings or murders, but these are very serious crimes to the community, like robberies, assault, active domestic violence incidents, indecent exposure. Um, or, you know, if somebody's calling about, Um, a person who's having what seems to be a mental health crisis. The police are taking a lot longer to respond. So, for example, when it comes to robberies, which I think anyone would agree, if if someone has been a victim of a robbery, you want the police there right now. It's now taking them on average 16 minutes um, to arrive to that. Mm -hmm. That's a long time. Yeah, one of the more troubling ones you just mentioned briefly was the domestic violence, too. So if you hear you know, something going on, you call the police. What's what's the average response on that? 49 minutes. So almost an hour before somebody shows up in a situation that could be mm-hmm. pretty violent. Or an assault, 52 minutes on average. Can you imagine that? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for somebody that, you know, if you are seeing somebody who's having a mental health crisis, that's on average like almost two hours to have the police respond. There's a reason we're calling that a crisis, you know. So so it's definitely a very tough situation right now and is creating a lot of concern. I do think it's really important to, to underline again, you know, for the most serious crimes, police are staying within their targets, which is to get there on average within seven minutes. But a lot of other things are falling by the wayside to try to keep that goal. Mm-hmm. Lisa, it might be a dumb question, but do you, did you ever get any sense that on mental health calls in particular that there may be just like a certain sense of um, 
reluctance to respond to those calls going forward from police officers because so many violent incidents have sprung from them. During your reporting, did you ever hear the mental health calls or a particular interest among officers for one way or the other? You know, I, I don't have a good sense of that just yet. One thing I would say that came up as a thread um, in the reporting is, you know, the police are saying one of the reasons that among others that sometimes they're taking a longer time to respond is that they're doing more de-escalation, which is something that a lot of people in the community really support. But those incidents can take more officers. Sometimes they're waiting on other units to respond as well who have expertise to deal with that. Um, and, you know, they take a longer period of time as well, because you don't want to rush, um, you know, if somebody's in crisis or there's something that can be de-escalated. Um, so they would say actually that that's contributing to the response times in some cases. So there's been no story that comes up more often for me over the last almost 20 years of reporting than the one that says police in the city of San Diego are um, disgruntled, uh, understaffed, underpaid, and uh, and thus can't perform this service. So always comes up. Um, it's and it's kind of constant, and I feel like every four or five years we go through this kind of spasm of it, and then we try to offer more benefits or more recruiting, and it just doesn't solve the problem. I imagine that's what they went to again. That this is a, a crisis of of morale and understaffing. So I would say that they what they talked about, um, and this is Jared Wilson from the Police Officers Association. Um, and some police leaders, including the, um, Captain Jeff Jordan. I mean, what they're talking about is officers are just, they say, just running ragged to calls and just constantly feeling like it's they're struggling to keep up. And these are the officers, not necessarily on your special units, but the ones that are responding to calls. And they're really dealing with what they say is an unprecedented staffing shortage, which is crazy to think about, as you know, because, I mean, I I can remember, you know, writing stories years ago about their challenges with recruiting and retention. Um, but I obtained a memo in the process of reporting out this story from the police chief where he said that basically they have, as of August 2022, they had the lowest available staffing than they had had. And this is sworn staffing officers to respond to calls, essentially sworn people that are able to respond to calls in 15 years, more than 15 years, in fact. And, you know, how do you define an available officer? I mean, this is somebody that's not on some sort of uh, medical leave, um, you know, not in the academy. Um, so I think that th what they would say is that the officers that are remaining, you know, and are available are having to work really hard. And there are costs with that, too. They may decide, hey, it's time to look for a job at another agency. I think, I think Scott, like what, you're, what you were sort of signaling is that this is kind of part of a playbook, right? There's like a history here of complaining about these things and then getting more money. And it's like, yeah, every year their, their budget does go up and it's, what, half a billion dollars at the moment? Like if, if, there, if the amount of money that the police department receives keeps going up, like what, what really is the issue? Like help me understand why are they so short staffed if they keep getting more money? Well, what I will say is I am not done digging into this. There are a lot of questions that I have. Um, I'm trying to plug some numbers into spreadsheets and figure out, okay, if we have you know, recruits coming in, how does that help us address this? And I'm really trying to, pr to press the department to give us more updated numbers. How bad is this now, right? That was 
August 2022. So I have a lot of questions that I'd still like to get answered to. So I guess where I'd leave that. Yeah. And you mentioned de-escalation techniques, which I saw that in your story as well, which is interesting. And also transparency measures. They were blaming public records requests for taking time away from officers. And it's like, on the one hand, that might be true if there's more bureaucratic measures that the officers need to go through and it's sucking up some of their resources. But at the same time, it's always the reforms that get blamed. It's always the, oh, this has been forced upon us and it's taking us away. And so it's almost like they use the public interest in their department against the public. I don't know. Like, did that come up in your conversations with them at all? Like, why are they always blaming the reforms for why they can't do their job? I wouldn't say that we talked about that philosophically, but I am trying to understand, Okay, so if they're saying that, you know, I think one was actually AB 1421 that that gave them new requirements to release, um, you know, information about about use of force or officer misconduct. Right. You wrote a lot about that a few years ago Mm -hmm. Um, that basically officers that might otherwise be on the street responding to calls are instead in these administrative functions. And so I have said, how many officers are we talking about here? Let's, they let's try you, right? to, not yet, <laughs> but I'm not done trying. <laughs> I'm going to keep trying to get at that. Well, I see where you're going. You're, you're like, yeah. look, every time there's a push for something for accountability or reform, then they use that as an excuse for why they can't respond to these quality of life concerns or or so it, any kind of like de-escalate. Oh, you're going to make us de-escalate. Well, that's going to make things uh, take longer or whatever. But I do think there's something bigger. There's like a deeper morale problem because there has been so much effort over the last few years to uh, sign, give bonuses to sign, to help them make sure that their pensions and their budgets are never they were never cut during the defund movement. They were never lowered. The benefits were were always protected. It the, went up. The raises were protected. And yet for that to continue to not work, to me, paints uh, a picture of a severe morale crisis, right? So they're clearly not recruiting enough people to fill the, the open positions that they have. And so why is that? And it, it doesn't help that it sounds like they're, they're they don't, think people should come to work. Here was uh, Jared Wilson, the Police Officer Association's uh, president. This is the Union of of Police Officers. He was speaking to NBC7 San Diego several months ago in April. And and he was saying, like, I wouldn't, I don't think people should come here. I would not recommend this agency right now. Like, I I would not do that. Strong words from Jared. Yeah. So that was, again, NBC. He's saying, like, I wouldn't tell people to come here. Well, that doesn't really help recruiting, right? And you you can't, if you're the mayor and you hear that, you have to have, like, one of two reactions or or maybe a mix of them. But one of them would be, like, that guy is not helping. Can can you get rid of him? And obviously they can't, but you you could, like, Try to figure out how to address that and confront that immediately because that is a problem. Or B, you need to deal with this uh, morale crisis at the police department. And at, at some point, how does that not come right down to the question of the chief? Is the chief and the mayor's office and the mayor hires the chief, is that leadership there to to correct this morale crisis? Because you can say the morale crisis is because of the defund movement and the accountability concerns. Well, I'm sorry, those aren't going away, especially around here. And so if you can't make the department more, uh, you know, a a higher level of morale, then find somebody else who can. Did you talk to the chief? 
I very briefly talked to the chief after my story ran, and really my message to him was, I'd like to see more information. (laughs) I'd like to talk about a lot more things. Yeah. Well, I think we all would. I think that there's there was one of the aspects of your story that I keep grappling with in so many different ways about this city was a story that you told of a woman who uh, reported a, a burglary, right? Yeah. So this is April Laster, who's a nonprofit leader who actually uh, serves on the mayor's um, black advisory group. Um, so this is back in June 2021. She says she was woken up bright and early um, to hear that the burglar alarm had got uh, had gone off um, at her he- former headquarters in southeastern San Diego. So she rushes, gets in her car. She still has her pajamas on. And, you know, when she gets there, the security company is saying, like, the system is detecting that there's someone inside. Don't go inside. And so she's just sitting in her car in her pajamas outside waiting, she says, for hours. And finally, this meeting time rolls around for the Black Advisory Group that day. And, you know, I think she debated a little bit, should I join? And she's like, you know what? I They need to see this. And so she logs on, you know, to Teams or Zoom or whatever it was. And she's still in her pajamas and she's in tears, she says. And she says that, you know, others in the meeting were like, oh, my gosh, what's going on, April? Are you OK? Including the mayor, Mayor Todd Gloria, who as soon as she recounted what was going on, she says, he said, let's take care of this. And she says then the police came out pretty shortly after that. Um, she got a call from a police captain as well, apologizing. Um, but when she gets inside, she sees, you know, that camera equipment's missing. Um, she learned later that the next door building had been broken into as well. And so now she just can't help but think like, wow, what if the police had responded sooner? Um, she also talked about how she was in sitting in one area in her car and she thinks that they got out the other side, um, that they may have actually like, you know, obviously the security system had shown someone wasn't, but somebody was in there when she was outside potentially. I feel like this this always comes up and we deal with this in homelessness as well, where like the right call gets made and the system kicks into gear and helps person who's worried about it right like just it's just like it's remarkable how often you know somebody can be struggling in the bureaucracy or or not getting a response from the city or whatever but then the right call gets made to the right person and boom the action happens but it always gives me that same feeling of like oh like what is is that an indication of how well it can work and we just need to scale that out or is it an indication that somebody else just took it you know, and and got a bad outcome because we had to mobilize for whatever right call got made. You know what I mean? It's a really like uncomfortable feeling. And I think I feel like this every time we hear about a story of a homeless person who finds shelter because of a of action like that that's taken. It's like, what didn't happen or who didn't get that spot or how did it work out? And it's just and it, it it's so it's so maddening. It's like on the one hand, you'd you'd love to get in a situation where a call can make something happen quick for everybody, but in in this kind of scarcity situation, that's just not possible. So, uh, did she feel like satisfied, or she come out with that same sort of feeling? I think she still feels really unsettled by what happened. For some of the same reasons you do, she also thinks, "Wow, someone else in my neighborhood who wasn't on the Black Advisory Group might have called the cops and." just been waiting. 
I think it's also important to highlight another story that I heard um, mm-hmm. reporting on this. Um, Isaac Howe, um, who was walking in Mission Bay Park on a Sunday with his wife and his baby, uh, came across a couple that were arguing and there were two young children with them. And this escalated into um, a man, he says, uh, hitting, slapping, knocking down this woman. And police records that I was able to nail down showed multiple people called 911 about that incident that's happening publicly in a public place with two young children. It took them 48 minutes to get there. And they took another several minutes to actually find this individual. And by then, the woman was gone. Hopefully, she's okay. But this also left Isaac with the same sort of feeling also that April had, which is, can I count on the police to help me when I need them? I mean, Isaac told me he questioned at one point, should I intervene? And he decided, no, I mean, I have my wife and my young baby with me. That would not, that could go really bad. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and that's something even I I posted my story on Reddit, which was always interesting to get the comments there. And there were a few people commenting similarly, like, do I need to take things into my own hands when something bad happens? So that stood out to me as well. And that actually really freaked me out because I could envision a world. I'm pretty pessimistic by nature, but I could envision a world in which there's more of that. Like there's been moments in, in San Diego's history when there have been groups of vigilantes that have gone around. It's not like outside the realm of oh, possibility. No. And so like when I read your story, my initial reaction was like, oh, that's really interesting. The cops are taking a lot longer. Is there a potential benefit to it with mental health calls? Like I went through all of that in my mind and then I came towards the side of, no, actually, this would be bad if people started stepping up their own because they believe that they were superheroes somehow. You well, know you what can, I mean? You can sense it in the community. There's a general, you know, sort of conclusion forming that you you're not going to get a response unless you you pull the right trigger, for the want of a better word. Like unless you pull that right sort of, and there's they're they're even coming up with tactics. I've heard about like. Don't say it's a homeless person because they won't come or don't say it's a, you know, there's just these these ways of, of talking about it that they're they're trying to resort to, to to get the police to act more quickly. But then other other situations where you just you're just resigned that it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to make sure we hit on like I think everybody listening to this is probably wondering what the hell is the city doing about this? So yeah. um, so. What the police department told me is that, you know, they have actually already reallocated some officers um, from specialty units and otherwise so that they're more available to respond to calls, to try to keep their their targets and, and try to provide a better response. And they're also actually even looking at, like, whether civilians, they could have more civilians to assist with investigations um, I think this is going to be a really interesting budget conversation. And of course, you know, I had to check in with Mayor Todd Gloria as well to see see what he thinks about all this. And he said as well, um, and I'll, I'll just quote from him too, he says, we're taking a hard look at how we allocate resources so that, for instance, our highly trained sworn officers aren't spending time on administrative tasks that can be handled by civilians or responding to behavioral health emergencies that should be directed to mental health professionals from the outset. Um, and he says he supports my continued reporting on this. Uh, he said that in his statement. So I'm going to hold him I'm to sure, that. I'm sure he does. <laughs> I think, uh, I, I mean, I think that's that, that's kind of a 
typical response. And I think it's it's just a matter of the question is like, what about the bigger issue, which you clearly have a morale crisis in this department, where to the point where they're telling people not to come work here. What is happening about that? And it's not we're looking. We're not. It's not. We're taking a hard look. That that hard looks don't fix that. So what is happening with that? And this gets back to like, there's just so many of these just giant problems, and it's like there is a grind. There's a lot of activity to deal with them, but uh, there's very little in the way of hope that it's getting better, right? And so hopefully this one um, uh, turns around sooner. Yeah, I look forward to the budget discussions on all of this coming up. Hopefully, I this, bet you do. <laughs> hopefully, this doesn't turn out to be the prequel to RoboCop. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, right. That just went in a whole other direction. <laughs> <laughs> Let's side chat. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Lisa, I think a lot of our conversation about homelessness and the conversation around the, the community has often broken into this like two-part framing. We even called a version of it the Faulkner Doctrine back when, this idea that like you should provide a lot of places for people to be and then you should crack down where they shouldn't be, right? And uh, that's taken, there's some guys going around saying like, yeah, you should put a camp out in the desert. And it's like, okay, well, should you concentrate them there maybe? Uh, uh, That obviously does violence to a lot of people's sense of conscience and justice. But there is, this keeps coming up in different ways. And you reported uh, last week that Councilman Stephen Whitburn has come up with his own version now where there would be uh, relentless enforcement of places where you can't have your tent, you can't encamp with your um, community members as a homeless resident, uh, but that there should be a vast space opened up for them. And you dug around and it sounds like the conversation about where that might be is centering around Inspiration Point in Balboa Park. Is that a fair summary of it all? Yes. And for those who don't know where Inspiration Point is, it's uh, close by to you know the Hall of Champions. There's a Veterans Museum. There's a big parking lot with a tram. Something that a lot of people pass by in Balboa a Park. Great view of a road and a highway. <laughs> it's very Actually, inspiring. there's a pretty there there are some pretty good views if you go deeper in around Inspiration okay. Point, but. 
Anyway, it's you don't a, come often, at Lisa with disparaging inspiration. <laughs> point, right? There's no reporter in town that is that is. That has defended Inspiration Point's honor more than Lisa had. <laughs> I have heard a lot about Sorry, it, <laughs> which is hilarious. But anyway, um, so so basically, this is an often forgotten part of the park. Well, let's and, just let to Jesse's point. Yeah. the park itself has been so divided by yes. the hospital, the fi- the mm-hmm. freeway, the you know roads and different you know the landfill. For, there's a landfill barely covered over around yes. more than field. Like there's a lot of problems with the park. And Which I've also of, written a lot and about. You would be you would it would be okay to look at Inspiration Point and not realize that it's part of quote Balboa Park, right? Some people see it as distinct, yes. Yeah. Yes. And so so to your point, you're not entirely wrong. I'm just saying there is a person in the room who's done a lot of work on the inspiration point. Okay. So yes, <laughs> continue, there, continue. Wow. Yes. So um, I probably should take a step back and just explain that, you know, there are kind of two things happening sort of separately. Maybe they're talking to each other a little bit, but it's, you know, not not entirely clear. But um, Council Member Steve, Stephen Whitburn, who represents Balboa Park, downtown, central city neighborhoods, he's hearing it from his constituents about homelessness a lot right now. As you can all imagine, some of you may have called and complained to his office. Yeah. Um, and so what he's looking at is twofold, like you said. Um, he wants to open up um, a place close to downtown. He said, you know, publicly what he said is a parking lot close to downtown where they might have a large tent shelter, tented shelter, and some number of places where people could set up camp um, and be outside still, but would have a place to go to kind of answer the question of to a lot of times when enforcement is happening Affecting unhoused people, the question is, well, where do I go instead? This would be the place to go. Mm-hmm. So you would provide that, potentially hundreds of new spaces for folks. Then he would also concurrently introduce a proposed ordinance that would basically uh, ban camping on public property. Now, some of you may know from following our reporting that the city now has a couple ordinances it often uses. Those are not always super clean. There have been issues with those over yeah, the years. Yeah, one of them is about not blocking the sidewalk. And then yes. one of them is about illegal lodging, which isn't yes, the same thing. which isn't the same thing. And and for that enforcement, one of the issues is that they've always had to have a place for people to be. You have to offer shelter. Uh, and so what he's trying to do is crack down, but also offer shelter. And one thing that's gotten a little less attention that I... I really look forward to the specific uh, specifics of the proposal is Whitburn says that he's also looking at banning settling in some areas like canyons or near schools. And we've seen some of these measures in other cities. Um, That would be a big deal. That would be something that some folks would get pretty fired up about. Now, separately, so so Stephen Whitburn has been out, you know, talking to folks about this. Um, you know, I, I happen to be sitting at a University Heights community meeting when he when he brought up this. Um, separately, the city's housing commission, which is the agency that oversees most of its homelessness contracts, they're aware that this is happening. They're constantly looking for places for people to, to shelter. Realizing that this is happening, the chairman of the housing commission, Mitch Mitchell, said, Okay, we're we're taking a close look at Inspiration Point to see what could happen there because we realize that there are some people talking about that, so we need to be able to talk about the amenities. But also, he emphasized 
They're looking at other places too because they realize that say that you did have Inspiration Point open up uh, for unhoused people, that is not going to work for everyone. Some people are not going to go in places where there are lots of other people. Um, you know, maybe they're they get really nervous around a lot of people. Or, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I I would not feel too super comfortable myself in an, a congregate bustling shelter. Um, so they're trying to look at a you know different options for different populations and groups as well. Yeah, I think there's a few things going on here, and it's 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 like what's what is the line between? And I made the joke earlier, but you really don't want a world where there's a concentration camp where you're allowed, you're forced to go to one area and concentrated and separated. And then there's, you know, this sort of head bashing going on to keep other people out of other places. On the other hand, like we are, one of the things I've been talking about a lot is that there is the the tents themselves that you see that people put up their individual tents are an expression of their desire for shelter I think people look at it and they say like, no, that's their desire to not be in homes. And to me, it's a desire to be sheltered. They're put, they're taking, they're doing their own and they're trying to protect themselves from the elements and usually along with other people that they feel comfortable with. There's two things that people need in life. One is uh, shelter and one is community. And there's others, purpose, for example, but that provides- Healthcare. Right. <laughs> But my point is, is that is that you know having that community and having shelter makes sense, and that's and that th- these encampments represent the desire for shelter and community. And rather than like trying to eradicate them and smash them out and force them into a system that they're clearly not attracted to, that we we need to figure out a way to channel that desire and that that drive, that human drive, to something to where we can have it, where it's where it's okay to be. And so that, in a sense, makes sense. But then you have the the city and others who are like, you can't do that unless you provide uh, lighting and security and showers and services and wraparound services and mental health services and all of these things that make it really hard for them to ever set these things up. You covered for a year the effort to do the one at what, uh, 4th and B, was it? 4th and Beach. Yeah, 4th and Beach. And it was for like 40 people and it never came together because of... A, all of the neighborhood concerns about it, but also B, the providers are, had trouble wrapping their mind around how to provide that much service for that few people, right? And so you, you get into this situation where like uh, you're, the minimum standard of what can be set aside for people has gotten so high that it's very difficult for them to pull it off, right? Well, and one thing that I, you know, this whole conversation has had me thinking about and reflecting on a little bit is, you know, to get people through shelters, to actually get them somewhere else, there needs to be housing. And that's a really big struggle for our region right now to find housing for people who fall into homelessness and who come into our shelters. Yeah. And so if you have a situation where you add a lot more shelter, for one, that's going to cost a lot. Like you talked about all the services tied to that. And also, you're going to have more people that the city feels responsible for. And rightfully so. We should feel responsible, I think, for folks that need help. But where are they going to all go? They can't all live at Inspiration Point forever if we decide that that's what we want to do. They're there, though. 
This True. is what this they're is, there. Yes. That's what drives me nuts is like when they say like you have to have all of this stuff in order to serve them. Well, that's not they're not they don't have all that in the encampments as they exist now. And so to the extent that I, I talked to Tamara Kohler from the um, uh, regional task force on the homeless, and she's like, the only thing they need is bathrooms. That's what you do. You set aside an area and you give them bathrooms. And I think that's a really powerful point. Like, can't we not? Yeah, I agree. Like, where are they going to go? But we already have that problem. Where are they going to go? True. And and I think like we we may need to consider again getting back to that idea that like, what if this was an emergency? What if we we saw a tsunami and it created eight thousand homeless people, and we had to deal with it? What would we do? We would set aside every possible place we could to set up tents and such for them to be while we figured out how it was going to work out long term. And I just, I, I feel like this is another of a singular effort to kind of pick away at the crisis when without doing like an umbrella crisis of which this is one part, then it won't, won't make sense. You know what I mean? It won't like, if you keep having the debate about inspiration point about fourth and beach, they're just going to get knocked down individually unless their people see them as a bigger part of the whole approach, right? And and that's what I fear this is probably going to go through is it's going to go this going to take months and months and a bunch of money and then they're going to have a big debate about it and then then they're going to shoot it down because it doesn't check every possible box for solving the crisis when it should still be just like one thing of a of a of a dozen similar type projects being being done across the community to try to make a dent in it. And so I, I don't want to sound like hopeless about it, but it just feels, it, it, it doesn't feel like it, it's got much of a chance. Well, I think it, I think the, the dollar signs are going to be quite large on this too. And I think that's going to create more debate. Yeah. Um, what as I heard well. like $30 million and, and if it serves like a thousand or 1500 people, that's, that's going to work out to math that you could almost pay rent on <laughs> for these people. But again, to your point, mm-hmm. Where would that be? Right? Yes. Well, and I think, you know, one thing I will say, too, about the, you know, about the campgrounds, right, is there are two different classes of, if we want to call it a safe camping situation. Yeah. There's your sanctioned campground, which is where you just tell people, you can go here. We set up porta potties. Be You can go. There's another type of, of concept where you want to provide intensive services there yeah. or some level of service. And- I've seen other communities do both things. Yeah. And San Diego seems pretty focused on the more service intensive one at this point, um, which, you know, some would argue is the right choice. Or people coming in are going to have a lot of needs. Yeah. You want to make sure if somebody, you know, for example, um, has a disability, we want to make sure that they can get up and around, right? But then there's another argument that, well, that person's already in a tent and somehow making do. Could we just set up a place where they also have a bathroom? Yeah. Well, this is going to keep coming up, especially as issues uh, around the community get even more um, acute and scary, which is what occurred earlier this week when you revealed that, again, county health officials are responding to still a small a small spike in hepatitis A cases. Now, hepatitis A is usually spread through uh, feces or you know um, uh, unclean situations. Now there's other ways to spread it, of course, um, but that's what happened in 2017. And you did that famous reporting 
back then that said, hey, this crisis has gotten out of hand. There are people dying, and that's what catalyzed the city to really move. Uh, They're not saying it's anything close to that yet, right? But they're worried? Yeah. So right now, um, they have reported five cases, um, three of which, you know, were people who were unhoused. One person who was unhoused passed away. Um, and, you know, they I will say in this is different from in the past. They issued a press release right away. You know, those who followed our reporting in the past know that at the time there was back then there was a lot of finger pointing between the city and the county. Um, this time they clearly were trying to present a united front. Um, I did confirm this week that one of those cases was at a city homeless shelter. I have not confirmed which shelter. No one will confirm that for me. But apparently at the shelter, um, they already have vaccinated dozens of residents there. That's different from in the past. Um, one thing that you know we reported in the past is that they were kind of slow to really pick up the vaccinations. Now, I know so many of our listeners are really interested in public restrooms and hand washing opportunities because that was a huge issue back then, too. Uh, continues to be, you know, a lack of public restrooms. So far, the city and the county say that they're not directing um, any increase in, you know, hand washing stations or, or public restrooms. They don't see this as an outbreak level yet, but they're trying to be cautious um, and I did ask uh, San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria's office, are you guys looking at more restrooms because of this? And they basically said, if the county tells us that that's needed, we will do that. But right now we're also focused on the vaccinations. Yeah. So that is one of the saving graces of this is that you can vaccinate for it. It does take two shots, though. And one of the problems is making sure you can get people in for that second booster, right? So you can see all of these stories and more in depth at VOSD.org slash Lisa. That's VOSD.org slash Lisa. You got your own page. I was very <laughs> excited about that also because it does not have my last name, which everyone misspells. It's a, it's a big name, but uh, thank you and uh, great work this week, guys. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded on Thursdays in San Diego. You can support the podcast and all of our work by donating at VOSD.org slash pod people. That's VOSD.org slash pod people. Again, we need you. If you value this, if you would be willing to pay, but you just haven't pushed the buttons, just push them. It's great. VOSD.org slash pod people. The link is in the show notes. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor-in-chief at Voice of San Diego. Jesse Marks is associate editor Lisa Halverset is our senior investigative reporter. And Nate Johns, our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.